Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay, because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at the Regal Downtown West Cinema 8, located at 1640 Downtown West Boulevard. We pray this message has an impact in your life, or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Good morning. I had the chance to meet several of you today for the first time. So for those of you here for the first time, welcome. My name is Adam and I'm the pastor here. For those of you who've been here before, you're also welcome today, okay? It's not just for them. Uh, I am the pastor here at The Point, and I'm really excited for today. Earlier this morning, we had Natalie Ivey from the Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking uh, present to us kind of an introduction to what is trafficking. Uh, Share with us, how do we recognize it? How do we begin to say, let's do something about this? And if you missed out on that opportunity, don't worry. She'll be up here with me in a little bit to share some more of what they do and how we get to make a difference. But there's a reason they're here. It's not just because I like to highlight them because I like them a lot. No, they're, they're here for something much greater. Has, has anybody ever asked the question, God, what do you want from me? Anyone? Have, have you ever been in that place of going, I just want to figure out how do I do what God wants? How do I live the way he asks? How do I be who he made me to be? What do you want from me, God? As we finish this hard love series today, uh, we're going to look at something that God wants from each one of us that is often really difficult. The prophet Micah asks this question, uh, what do you require, Lord? Here it is in chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? He says, look, should I come in my worship? Should I give all of my affection, you know, even the best of my goods? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my, sin, my transgression? A fancy word for sin. Should, should I give my firstborn for my sin, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? With what will the Lord be pleased? What do I need to do that God is satisfied and is content and is not only content, but is pleased. And then Micah gives the answer in the very next verse. He says this, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. If you want to know how to do what God is asking you to do, do justice. What does that mean, to do justice? We live in a culture that thinks justice is a lot of things it's not. Anybody seen like those social justice warriors? The people who every time there's a new cause, they have to be the one to raise the loudest voice? And they don't ever actually do anything, but they talk a lot about doing things? Anybody ever interacted with those people? We have all kinds of causes today that need justice. 
Uh, if you've not seen my coffee mug yet, it's a new mug my mother-in-law gave me for Christmas. It says, be careful or you might end up in my sermon. And so uh, here you go. I was meeting with somebody a couple weeks ago and she's a teacher. And as a teacher, she decided to have a pizza party for her class. And one of her kids is a vegan. Doesn't eat anything from animals. And so trying to be considerate, she sent an email to the parents and she said, hey, we're going to have pizza. I know your, your child is vegan. If you would like to bring something instead for your child to enjoy, please feel free to. And the response really caught me off guard. The response was, you need to buy a vegan pizza for my child. With kind of the tone, or else. And she went to the principal and said, what, what do I need to do about this? And her principal's like, you need to buy a vegan pizza because I don't want to deal with the, the mess when she gets mad that we're discriminating against her child. What? Whether or not you're vegan or keto or I don't care what other diet, that is not a discrimination to say, hey, I'm not buying your pizza, right? But our culture is so confused by what justice means that any wrongdoing we assume is injustice. You didn't give me the discount at the grocery store? What an injustice, right? Chick-fil-A closed on Sunday? What an injustice, right? And we confuse what justice really is. And unfortunately, when we raise our voice about every injustice, nobody listens to any injustice. When we raise our voice to cry, everything is unfair treatment, nobody listens when we're actually talking about a real problem. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice. Justice is a word I don't normally use in my day-to-day -day living. Uh, but justice is to do what is right, what is good, what is honorable. To do what builds others up. If you look at Webster's Dictionary, the, the phrase to do justice means to appreciate properly. If you want to do justice, you have to appreciate properly. I thought about that. When it comes to these issues of injustice, people who've been wronged, people who have been hurt, people who've been attacked, what does it mean to appreciate properly? To see them through a different lens, not as a victim we need to fix. Not to see them as a criminal who's done something wrong but to see them as somebody who is broken, but loved, who is worth so much more than they've experienced or done so far. What does the Lord require? Do justice. When it comes to this hard love, we are called to love people in a way that hurts. Mother Teresa was once quoted to say, if you love until it hurts, and then you keep loving... There can be no more hurt, only more love. That doesn't mean the pain of loving goes away. But for you and I, when we love, we get to walk into this place of hurt and this place of pain, this place of vulnerability and this place of shame. And we get to come alongside somebody and say, I'm sorry, this wasn't okay. And it's not okay. I'm here with you now. And sometimes that love hurts deeply. But if we want to do justice, 
If we want to see justice happen around us, we have to love until it hurts. There's a story in the book of Acts that uh, I I found really fitting for today. And now I have to warn you, this story doesn't fit with uh, why I have the coalition here, what they're going to share in a little bit. Uh, It doesn't fit exactly. Except in this story, there is a woman who is being exploited for commercial gain. And if you don't know technical language, that would be trafficking, all right? Now, her exploitation's a little bit different than what I think the coalition experiences, um, though I'm pretty sure if they experience this in the future, they'll be quick to give me a call, all right? Uh, So here's her story. If I could get my zipper undone. All right, here's her story. Come on, guys. I know that's Nick back there laughing and Jackie, come on. All right. (laughs) So, Acts chapter 16. This is why we allow your kids to go to Kids Point. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And Paul and, and Luke, presumably, and Silas were, were headed to uh, this place of prayer. They're going to the temple, to the church, to gather with others to pray and, and worship. They're on their way, and they meet this woman who's possessed by a spirit. This is why I'm pretty sure they'll call me if this happens, all right? This woman is demon-possessed, and this demon inside of her is giving her the ability to tell the future in such a way that other people are making money off of her. And then Paul does what um, I think many of us might do. It says, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Huh? Here's this demon-possessed woman, who's being exploited, and she follows Paul, and she just keeps crying out, these men are from God. How would you respond? Like, everywhere you turn, this person's a godly person. Look out for that person. They love God. They're going to tell you what God has done. Here he comes, telling you what God's doing. Paul responds as I probably would. And she kept doing this for many days. You ever had like a dripping faucet? in your house, it just drives you nuts, right? The first time, oh, I got to fix that. I can't, Uh uh-oh. The second time, the hundredth time, by three days, you're ready to rip the faucet out of the wall. This woman is following just constantly for days. Here's the one, the the man of God, God, the man, he's here to tell you all about God. Listen to him. Paul's like, shut up, I'm trying to talk, right? And Paul does what I would probably do. For many days, uh, she kept doing this. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. It came out that very hour. Now, I share that because uh, sometimes we can do justice for the wrong reasons. Paul didn't do it because he loved her. He did it because he was annoyed by her. He didn't do it with this righteous motive. I want to help her come to, to experience freedom and healing. No, it's just... Gosh, you're driving me nuts. There are people that need justice that will drive you nuts. 
If you've ever tried to work with people who've been hurt or exploited or oppressed, sometimes in their wounding, they're going to be really, really obnoxious. You know why? Because you're really obnoxious sometimes. And so am I. Every one of us can be annoying. And Paul, out of the wrong motive, turns around and casts out this demon and sets her free. And then it goes on in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. See, for Paul, his motive to do justice wasn't good, but he still did justice. And for these owners of this woman, for these people exploiting her, for these people taking advantage of her and not caring that she's possessed by a demon, not concerned that she's experiencing this trauma. No, they just are looking to gain something from her. And they're mad that they've lost their opportunity. They're mad that their chance of commercial gain, of making a buck, was gone. They seize Paul and Silas, they drag them to the marketplace, and then they say this, when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Could you imagine being Paul? Like, just in a moment of being annoyed, you're like, stop it! And then you turn around and they beat you for it? They drag Paul and Silas into the courtyards, in the marketplace. They beat them. And then when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened, fastened their feet in the stocks. I love this story and I really hate this story. I love this story because here's a woman being exploited and for the wrong motives, Paul helps her. And then he experiences a lot of pain afterwards, a lot of suffering in the process. I also hate this story because I wonder why it took the wrong motives for Paul to do then. Like, how come we're easily motivated by things that get under our skin, but we're not easily motivated by people who are hurting? Have you ever thought about that? I'm really quick to say this problem is annoying me. This is why when it comes to some social justice issues, you only hear voices raised when it's a popular thing to raise. But when it's no longer popular, when it fades into the background, when the experience is a little bit in the past, we get silent and we go back to doing what we're already doing and forgetting about the problem at hand. Paul and Silas, for the wrong reasons, help this woman and they suffer because of it. You and I are called to do justice and I've never been beaten and thrown in prison because of something I've done. I've been beaten, but that was a different thing. That was just kids fighting and being dumb and mean, right? But I've never been beaten and thrown in prison because I tried to help somebody. But what if we need to be? And by that, I, I mean, what if people who are hurting, who are being exploited, who are being oppressed, who are in this place of experiencing injustice, need us to stand with them and for them? to give them a voice, to help them find their own voice? What if they need us to do it no matter the cost? 
Would we? See, I wonder for Paul, if he had known in advance, hey, when you do this, you're going to suffer. I wonder if he would have still done it. I'd like to think from other things we read of Paul that he probably would have. But given that it stresses because he was annoyed he did it, I wonder if maybe not. See, you and I live in a place that is incredible. We have at our fingertips a justice system that fights for justice. And sometimes it's broken and we need to fight to fix a broken system. And sometimes the justice system at our fingertips falls short and leaves gaps where people are hurting and we need to stand up and say, I'm here and you're loved. We don't have to fix the problems, but be a voice for justice, a voice who uses our words and moves it into action. It's not enough to say there's a problem if we don't do something about it. And we're here this morning because the truth is, and what we're going to find out here in a couple moments, there's some great injustice of people being exploited happening in our neighborhoods and workplaces and places we eat and communities all the time. This problem of trafficking we're going to talk about isn't new. It's not something we just discovered. It's been going on since Paul's day, since long before Paul's day. This problem has been here. But we've been unwilling to talk about it or address it or say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make a difference in it. We're, we're here to do justice, to love these people who are hurting, who are being oppressed in a way that maybe they've never been loved before. We're here to do this because we have a great hope. See, when we've been wronged, it's really easy to stop fighting for those who have also been wronged. When we've been hurt, it's really easy to say, well, look at me and begin to focus on all of my pain and my problems and my injustices and forget we need to step out and focus on those who are also suffering. Now, I need to clarify here. Don't hear me say this. Don't hear me say your suffering doesn't count because somebody else is suffering worse. No, the injustice you've suffered is equally unjust and not good. But sometimes when we focus on ourselves, we don't know how to make a difference, how to change the pain we're living in. But when we begin to pour out into others and to love in our pain and through our pain and walk with them in their pain, and we begin to do justice and appreciate them for who they are, we begin to find justice for ourselves. You see, you and I have been wronged and have wronged others have done injustice, but our hope, the reason we can love when it hurts, is because we have a God who loves us when it hurts, who does justice for us, to us, who appreciates us properly and gives everything for you and me that we can be made able to love others, especially when it hurts. So I've mentioned a few times they're here today. I'm going to invite uh, Natalie Ivey and Katie Little. Come on up here. Uh, they are here from the Community Coalition Against Human Trafficking. 
And as we seek to do justice, if you've been around the point for a few weeks, you know we love this organization. We love the work they're doing. We love partnering with them in any way possible. And so they're here. They're going to share with us a little bit more of who they are and what they do and how you and I can do justice right here in our community. How we can make a difference in those who are hurting, who've been oppressed, and bringing them uh, the things they need to be made right. Now, I was told we have stools. I see two over here. Is there a third stool? Um, Alan, could you give me a hand with these real quick? I'll have the two of you over here, right over here. And we've got some microphones, the green one and the red one. Take your pick. It's Christmas, if you have a preference. Thank you, Alan. I think this might be yours. I know, stools, super hokey, right? Mostly, I just felt like being nice and not making them sit there, stand here for half an hour. Also, they're not going to be here for half an hour. Don't worry. Yeah. So as we want to do justice, the reason we partner with the coalition quite a bit is because they're actively doing the hard work with people who've suffered a lot of exploitation and a lot of pain. So um, now that I've taken your spiel, uh, Natalie, will you tell us a little bit about the coalition, where you guys came from, yeah. and the work you're doing at the moment? Sure, I, I would be delighted to. So we are a nonprofit organization. We're based here in Knoxville, uh, but we serve all of East Tennessee. We have 33 counties in our service region. So we are up in the Tri-Cities all the way down to Chattanooga. Um, and we kind of have a four-point mission in the way that we serve uh, those counties, uh, one of which is to raise awareness. So if you were with us this morning, um, this will be a, a repeat. But um, we are constantly working to equip our community with the knowledge they need to recognize trafficking, to understand what it really is looking like in our community. Um, one of our issues with trafficking is we are kind of battling misinformation. It's not just a lack of information. Um, most of the information that is out there on social media, the stuff that kind of catches fire, unfortunately, is um, not accurate. And so, um, you know, when we have a public that's exposed to that misinformation, uh, it's a blinded public and it's a public that's not really equipped to recognize and see the issue for what it is. So we are always working to raise awareness. Um, and then the second step to that is to provide training to equip our community to respond. So through that, we've developed uh, probably 12 or 13 courses, I guess, uh, different specific trainings. And a lot of those trainings are for specific professions. So we have developed specific trainings for educators, for foster parents, for real estate agents, in-home service providers, for substance abuse, mental health counselors, for uh, medical professions, for... Um, law enforcement for legal profession i'm sure i'm skipping some um, but all of these professions that have unique opportunities to intersect trafficking and to work with individuals who've experienced trafficking so kind of what's indicative about those trainings it kind of shows you right off the bat part of the issue with trafficking is a very difficult um, crime it's a de very difficult victimization to detect when it's happening you know if it was easy we wouldn't need a full-blown training for medical providers we would just tell doctors and nurses hey ask your patient if they're being trafficked uh, it's not that easy it's actually very very difficult so for example our medical training is a four-hour training that's how long it takes for us to really adequately prepare and train those providers to recognize it uh, when they have patients presenting 
So that's the second component of our mission. The third is uh, to provide collaborative effort. So we had a question after our training this morning talking about the bureaucracy of response. Um, you know, having agencies respond to this issue, it can be difficult, it can be tricky. Um, we kind of serve as a wheelhouse and uh, I guess you could say the grease between the wheels of a lot of those agencies. Um, I am real big on forcing people to get together to get to know folks and to talk and so we bring um, all of those agencies on a monthly basis to our offices and we facilitate communication and conversation so that when our community is responding to trafficking we know each other uh, we can contact each other and it facilitates an ad uh, uh, adequate response and a helpful response to the victim and we're not getting caught up saying you know uh, having a territorial argument or uh, getting frustrated with each other we're putting all of that petty stuff aside and we're responding to the victim of trafficking. So we help host task forces here in Knoxville and then we're replicating that up in Johnson City and hope to replicate it down in Chattanooga as well. And then the last thing that we do for the counties that we serve, which is you know arguably the most important thing we do, is provide direct services to victims of trafficking. So we serve males, we serve females, we serve adults, we serve kids. Um, I think our youngest referral is 18 months, um, and we've worked with survivors in their 50s and 60s who need resources. Um, and we do those direct services a number of different ways. We do have a emergency receiving center here in Knoxville that can um, uh, facilitate a safe uh, emergency bed, essentially, for adults who identify as female if they need to exit an unsafe uh, situation. And so that's a four-bed facility. Uh, it's open 24 hours a day, staffed 24 hours a day. Uh, and it provides a stable uh, um, kind of environment for an individual to come to. So that's one of the ways we provide direct services. But the other way is a lot of our community case management. So um, many, many of our victims um, are born and raised here in East Tennessee and want to stay where they are. Uh, they are living in the town that they were raised in, uh, maybe working there, going to school there. And so we provide a lot of direct services to them, uh, coming to them to meet them. So we might be plugging them into therapeutic services, we might be uh, helping them uh, gain access to medical care that they need, um, providing a supportive and um, you know kind of wraparound services for them as they seek a life of stability and to deal with the trauma that they've experienced. So the clip that we saw earlier today is Lisa, um, our Director of Survivor services uh, she and our therapist who's on staff they do a lot of traveling all over East Tennessee's uh, particularly with our kiddos um, I mentioned earlier this morning they are literally driving out to Irwin Tennessee once uh, twice a week they're driving up to Wartburg they're driving out to the Cherokee National Forest uh, meeting with kids in their home and if Lisa and Amy were not doing that this is one of uh, you know the our kind of benchmark things that we come back to we know if they were not going out to see those kids those would be services that those kids would not receive. So, you know, it is so crucial, it's so important that they are able uh, to do that. So, um, we are going to be opening a transitional housing facility here in Knoxville this year, which is going to be a big addition to the services, the direct services we provide, which will provide a long-term uh, um, supportive and stable housing opportunity for survivors of trafficking. Awesome, thank that you. That was a very long answer to that's, a short question. That's perfect. So uh, I'm going to speak what some people here might be thinking, and if this is you, don't worry, I've thought this too. Uh, most of us, when we think of trafficking, think of Liam Neeson, right? We think of kidnapping, Special smuggling, all of these <laughs> skills that none of us have, and yeah. say, what can I do about that? Yeah. So if that's not trafficking, uh, what is? What, what are we talking about when we're talking about trafficking? Go for it. Oh. 
Uh, well, I think, and if you were in Natalie's training this morning, you heard her talk a lot about this, but I think, like you said, we think stranger danger. Um, we think of those posts that we see on Facebook. I don't know how many of you are on Facebook and have seen, you know, my daughter's friend's cousin was at Target or TJ Maxx and saw a creepy white van parked outside. Trafficking is happening at Target. Everybody look out. Um, but we don't see it come to us that way. Um, in East Tennessee, we see a lot of familial trafficking. So especially in some of the more rural counties, we see mom or mom and boyfriend, mom and dad, um, trafficking or selling their kids out of the home um, because it's a way to make ends meet in a lot of communities. And in a lot of communities, that's the way that, you know, when mom was a child, that's how they made ends meet. And it's a cyclical normalized behavior. Um, but we also see inner partner violence. So um, we see, you know, maybe a teenager with an older boyfriend who gets to know her. It's somebody in her circle. It's not a stranger that's snatching her off of a sidewalk or out of her bed at night. It's a friend of the family, maybe, who starts dating her. Her parents love him. Um, you know, maybe they, you mentioned this morning, maybe they go to church on Sundays together. And maybe one day he asks her for something that she doesn't really want to do, but he says, hey, just for today, I need you to do this thing for me. Um, it's a way for us to make a little bit of money so that we can be together, maybe move out together, go somewhere together. Um, and once he can convince her to do that one time, it becomes so much easier to continue that cycle of exploitation and abuse. And because it's someone that she knows or that her family knows, it's hard for her to say, wait a minute, maybe this isn't right. You know, everybody loves him. He's part of the family. He comes over to the house. Dad loves him. So it, it becomes difficult for the folks that we serve to put a finger on that and to say, I'm a victim of something. Because if it's your boyfriend or if it's your mom, someone that you feel like you should be able to trust or the people around you trust, it makes you feel a little bit crazy, you know, to think something might not be right here or this is maybe something that I should tell someone else about. So. Cool. Now, I, I know for many of us, if we don't see this on a daily basis, if we're not living in this and recognizing it, when we hear uh, this person's being trafficked, or the flip side, we hear the symptoms of trafficking. Here's a person addicted to drugs, or here's a person that's um, out on the streets making money. Um, there, it's easy, to, like Paul, to think a lot of unhealthy things, to be annoyed, to think negatively of that person. Um, what do you guys do not only you two personally in your office, but in your training to help people have a different gut reaction or a different response? Sure. I mean, we're always um, having a discussion about our personal stigmas and our personal responses. I think your talk today was so appropriate to that. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier this morning, we're really sensitive about the imagery that gets used with trafficking because uh, folks want to get involved with it. They, they think it's, um, you know, something that they could, they're passionate about. And their poster child of a victim is almost always a 14-year-old white girl who's got tears running down her face and her arms are, you know, she's handcuffed. And it's a very pitiful, very sad, tragic image. Um, it's annoying to us because first and foremost, um, that's kind of a, um, it fuels some misconceptions. And we talked about that this morning. Um, if trafficking was so obvious that our victims were handcuffed and they were tied somewhere, would it be difficult for our public to recognize them as victims? 
Of course not. We would see those individuals and say, well, you're obviously being controlled. You're being coerced. um, And I need to help you. And I want to help you. Um, But also the reality is this is happening in plain sight all of the time. The reason that we're not detecting it is not necessarily because we don't have the information. It's because when they present to us, we are stigmatizing them because of the way that they are presenting. So we talked this morning, you know, studies suggest that 90% of commercial sex workers are actually victims of trafficking. That's sometimes shocking to folks, but if you think critically about it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, If you are going to victimize another individual in broad daylight, the best thing you could do is make them look like someone that no one else cares about. Not only that nobody else cares about, but maybe that other people are gonna criminalize. So when we talk about the victims of trafficking, they're in front of us all of the time. And so they are presenting in ways that we have inherent stigma towards, and we are either ignoring or judging or criminalizing. So, you know, we talk to victims of trafficking all of the time who um, have been arrested 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times during their victimization. And no one is asking them, are you okay? What's going on with you? Are you safe? Is this what you wanna be doing? You know, we talk to victims of trafficking who um, because of their victimization are kicked out of their home. Her, her, you know, parents who say, well, gosh, if that's what you're going to do now, you can't live here, uh, who get socially disconnected, socially stigmatized. Um, and so it's very easy for this to hide in plain sight. You know, when we talk about the prevalence of trafficking, it's hard for people to digest sometimes as they think, well, gosh, if it's that, if it's happening that often, I would know it. I would see it. We choose not to see it on a regular basis. Now, who would you say is most likely to be trafficked? Uh, I know this is a a loaded question, so I ask it on purpose. Uh, When we're thinking of recognizing trafficking and seeing this exploitation and doing justice, who are we looking for? What are we looking for? I think one of the things that we talk about a lot is that um, trafficking happens when someone who knows you and knows you well and knows your vulnerabilities well exploits those vulnerabilities and so certainly we see um, certain populations at higher risk um, you know youth that are in foster homes or um, perhaps coming from an abusive situation at home or um, young ladies who don't have a strong family unit to fall back on or dating somebody and that's kind of their main source of support Um, but in reality It's really anybody who has a vulnerability that can be exploited um, by someone who knows them and and will exploit that. Um, One thing that we really see here in East Tennessee is that the demography of the folks that we work with reflects the demography of the region. The people, for the most part, that we see come into our program are not foreign nationals, which I think is another thing that we think about when we think about trafficking, right? I know when I first heard about trafficking before I started doing this work, you think Southeast Asia or India, you don't think about people who are born and raised in East Tennessee, but really that's what we see. And so that makes it that much harder, I think, to hide in plain sight because it's our neighbors and kids that we teach at school and people at our church and folks that we see at the gym um, who just have a relationship that's manipulative and abusive. We talk a lot here. Um, we use the language, it's okay to not be okay. Um, 
One of the reasons I've been asked in the past, hey, why do we do so much with the coalition? Uh, one of the reasons we partner a lot with them is because we believe every one of us has vulnerability. Places that are hurting, places that are, are broken, and if we're not surrounded by a strong community, uh, any one of us could be victim of somebody else taking advantage of our pain and our weakness and our moment of need. And um, that's what I love about what you guys are doing is you're looking for those who are hurting, who are vulnerable and saying, we're, we're here. Um, and sometimes this work is pretty uh, noticeable. You get to do it pretty obviously. Sometimes it takes a lot of time to really kind of crack the, crack the nut and begin to uh, get these women or these men to open up to you. Yeah. Uh, one thing you mentioned earlier today, and, and then we'll wrap up, I want to ask a question about this. You talked about the demand. And be, the reason trafficking happens is because there's a, a demand. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the key things that, in your opinion, lead to that high demand mm -hmm. uh, for trafficking? Oof. Um, yeah, so we talked this morning, I think oftentimes, um, Folks are shocked by the prevalence of victimization in our community, and it is shocking. Um, you know, I always tell folks if you're attending one of my trainings, you know, if you have worked with the general public for any period of time here in East Tennessee, you have probably already intersected a victim of trafficking, and maybe you knew something was off, and maybe you didn't even recognize that there was something happening. Um, also tell folks if you continue to work in East Tennessee, if you do not live under a rock, you are going to intersect a victim of trafficking because trafficking, that's just the nature of the prevalence. Um, you know, that being said, I can absolutely guarantee you that you have intersected, you have worked with, you have lived next to, you have eaten next to uh, an, an individual who has purchased sex. Um, there's also a good chance you've done those things with an individual who has purchased a child for sex. Because when we talk about the prevalence of victimization, it is nothing compared to the prevalence of buyers of sex in our community. We are overrun with the amount of demand here in our community. And so that's a big part of this equation, right? We talked this morning, we have to recognize that, we have to be honest about it because it's kind of irresponsible not to. We're just gonna be spinning our wheels, just reacting to victims of trafficking and trying to arrest all the traffickers. If we don't address the demand, it's gonna be there forever and ever and ever. Um, you know, and I think the cause of it, there's a lot of debate about that. There's a lot of studies about it in, in reality. I think that's a personal question, you know, that you have to mull over. I think for me personally, um, part of that comes from a lack of conversation, a lack of healthy and open conversation um, with our community. So this is kind of a silly um, example, but I feel like um, sometimes when it comes to healthy relationships, when it comes to sexual relationships, we're not having those conversations with our kids. And I kind of equate it to, uh, I've got two little ones, so this is what I relate to. I kind of equate it to um, walking in a parking lot, right, with little kids. Um, is walking in a parking lot, is that potentially dangerous for little kids? Absolutely, right? Could be lethal. Um, and so my response as a parent is not, well, we'll just never go in a parking lot, right? And kids, if you ever see a parking lot, get as far away as possible. Don't go in a parking lot. I don't want, I don't want to ever hear about you being at a building that has a parking lot, right? Um, of course, I know that's not practical. And uh, my response also is not, kids, sit down. We need to have a parking lot talk. Right? This is going to be awkward for you and it's going to be awkward for me, but we'll get through it and then I can say we have talked about parking lots and that should be enough for you. Right? Um, what we do is talk about parking lots all the time. Right? 
you talk about it as soon as you're getting out of the car and you're probably having that conversation four times before you get to the front door. And what are we saying? Hey, cars can't see you in parking lots. You got to look up. You got to pay attention. You can't be running in parking lots. You're going to make cars nervous. You're constantly reinforcing and giving them tools and conversations about what can be dangerous about parking lots and then how to navigate that, right? And we need to be having similar conversations with our kids about relationships, about the scary and the dark stuff about life, right? And I think part of it too, the danger is when we hide all of particularly, and I'm sorry, we're just gonna jump in here, but all of sexual activity, if all of it is under this layer of shame, right? We just don't talk about any of it. Then it's very difficult for a kid as they grow and they develop to ever discern what's healthy and what's unhealthy because it's all just levels of shame. And it's, um, you know, I, I kind of also equate it to like healthy eating. Do we talk to our kids about that? Not all eating is healthy, but here are ways to navigate that. Here are healthy choices, here are unhealthy choices, and here's what we need to talk about. And we give very clear parameters and information and discussion about that. We don't do that with kids. And so, you know, I think a lot of times folks ask us about the prevalence of pornography and, and how that plays into trafficking. I think that can contribute to um, uh, unhealthy mentalities. Uh, I think one of the most dangerous things is we give pornography so much power because we let it, we let it control the conversation. We don't have any conversations outside of it. And so it becomes the only source of information. I say it's kind of like trying to teach our kids how to drive by only showing them Fast and Furious videos, right? <laughs> and we're like, you know, we expect them to be able to navigate the world and not go drifting into parking lots because, you know, that's all they've been exposed to. So I think so much of it, the long and short of it is, I think we have to be having conversations. We've gotta be tackling tough issues. We've got to constantly be um, proactive about dealing with some of these dark and heavy things um, and just being honest with ourselves about, you know, about life and ways to navigate life. Awesome. But that's my personal opinion. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and you said you're just gonna jump right in. Uh, for those of you who are new here, we have no problem jumping right in. <laughs> Uh, and we're really comfortable with the uncomfortable. In fact, texting questions, I'm kind of nervous what's coming. Okay. But we'll address them, all right? We're, we're open with that. We're okay with that. Yeah. Um, so my next question, I know you guys have grown a lot in the last year. You've grown in staff. You've grown in the services you offer, the, the distance you're traveling. Um, can you share more about 2019 and kind of your numbers for what you did last year? Yeah, so for the past few years, we've been seeing all of our numbers essentially double or more than double. Um, in 2018, I think we received 81 referrals for survivors, male, female, adult, youth, who needed um, to be connected with resources, safe housing, all of those things. Um, last year, we received around 200 referrals and served more than 81, more than the number of referrals we had the year before. Um, and so I think it's not necessarily that it's happening more in the community, right? But that as a community, we are kind of honing in on what it looks like and, and having the tools to respond and the pipeline to, you know, say when, when you recognize it, this is how you report. This is what those people do. We're building networks with service providers, but with also community members because, um, you know, we have members of our team who are out driving to Wartburg and Irwin every day. Um, I'm not one of them. I'm sitting behind a desk all the time. And so I'm not out in the community 
identifying these individuals. Um, but folks like you all who are in classrooms or you know, working in a hospital or a doctor's office or a dentist's office or whatever that looks like, you all are on the front lines. And by having a community like you who are equipped with knowing how to recognize red flags, we're seeing these numbers go up and we're seeing more survivors who are connected with the care that they need. Um, and so, you know, a lot of growth in the past couple of years um, to meet the demand. When, you know, a few years ago, I think we had a team of five <laughs> and now we're a team of 15, which is wild. Um, and so we're, you know, it's unfortunate that there is that demand in the community, but we're grateful to have partners and individuals and resources and, and things like that in the community uh, where our leadership and um, agencies here are standing up and saying, you know, we're gonna do what we need to do to make sure that we're responding and that these people who in a lot of cases are marginalized and are sort of on the fringes of the community, the people that Natalie mentioned we're stigmatizing perhaps because we don't recognize the extent of their situation, um, we're not letting those people slip through the cracks. And so we've been seeing those numbers yeah, increase. Yeah, I, I will say to you, our uh, director of survivor services, I think always kind of secretly hates me because uh, we have such a responsive community. So, you know, like Katie was saying, those numbers are not reflective of the work that we're doing necessarily. It is reflective of our community. So in 2018, we trained a little over 2,000 people. And just as a little side note, we're not cold calling anybody and asking, hey, can we come train you? Those are requests that are coming in from the community. So we trained a little over 2,000 people and our referrals for 2018 doubled, right? Direct correlation there. So 2019, you see, we trained over 5,000 people. So we are doubling, we doubled from 2018. Um, and then again, our referrals doubled. So this is uh, the reason that Chantel, our Director of Survivor Services, hates me is because when I go out to do these trainings, they're dark and they're heavy. And a lot of times I don't think folks know what they're getting into when they ask me to come and talk to them. But they take that information. They don't just put a button on and say, well, I'm gonna support you. They don't, don't just put a sticker on their you know, folders. They're not saying this in name. They are taking that information back into their community. They are plugging in individuals who need help to our resources, and that's phenomenal. It's amazing. So Chantel always gets irritated because if I go up in Johnson City and do a training, guess what? We get referrals out of Johnson City. And when I go down to Chattanooga and do a training, we get referrals out of Chattanooga. Uh, because our East Tennesseans, our community, I attribute it to East Tennessean quality. I don't know if that's scientific or not, but I, I can stand beside it. Uh, our community hears this information and then they take it back and they put it into action, which is phenomenal. And we have the privilege of kind of getting to see that come together, which is really amazing. So that's my next question. What can we do uh, not only to support the work you're doing, but to begin to make a difference to do justice in the realm of those who are being trafficked? Sure. Well, the first thing I do want to say is um, it is such a privilege for Katie and I to be here today. Uh, the point um, is such an integral part of the work that we do. Um, and if you're not aware of it, you need to be aware of it. But I was thinking this morning, I literally don't think I can take five steps in my office space or in the emergency receiving center or just about an 
in anything we do and not see something that the point has had their hands on or been a part of. Uh, whether it's hanging barn doors in our office space or painting trim or cleaning areas um, or supporting us financially, um, you guys are such a cornerstone of the work we do. And it's so valuable to us, not just from a logistic capacity standpoint, of course that's helpful, um, but you encourage our hearts and our brains and um, you know make us laugh and you come alongside us in such a supportive um, and unique way. It truly is unique. Uh, I mentioned earlier this morning, I think it's a great example, but this is this sums up uh, especially Pastor Adam for us. And let me just say, I think my kids have met Adam once, um, but they know the term Pastor Adam because I'm always saying, oh yeah, Pastor Adam, Pastor Adam, Pastor Adam, you know, helped us find this. He helped us uh, plug this in. They know that as a term, right? That's They just think that's a phrase that you use. Is that a Pastor Adam? Um, but, uh, you know, I think this is a great example of uh, what Adam does. He su supports us and, and, and through his congregation, through y'all's work, uh, supports us not just with stuff, uh, but encourages us uh, in the work that we do uh, on a daily basis. But he came by one day. It was not a good morning for me. It was cold um, and rainy. It was, it was really not rainy. a good morning for anybody. I wanna, I'm wanting to say it was a Monday morning, but I don't know if that's fair. Um, but we're having issues with our gate, right? It keeps rocking. Every time it rocks, the security system gets called. I get a phone call in the middle of the night or the weekend saying, hey, someone's breaking into your house. It's just the wind blowing the gate. I'm over it. So tired of it. So I get there and somebody mentions to Adam, yeah, our gate's blowing. And I told him, it's just broken. It's, I'm, we're just taking the lock off it. I'm not dealing with it anymore. And he talks me down off the cliff, right? And I'm convincing him like, no, it's, it's pointless. It's point I mean, I'm literally just throwing a temper tantrum in the office. This is done. I'm done with the gate. We're just going to leave it open. Uh, he takes me out there, talks me off the cliff and finds a solution. And I thought, what a great example of the work that he does with us and the work that you guys do um, is able to uh, encourage us mentally, which we need sometimes, but then help us actually fix the problem. So it does so much work uh, and good for the folks who are on the front line, but I cannot overstate what this does for the folks that we serve. Um, you know, I think it's really important that we understand the implications behind y'all's commitment and service. I met somebody out uh, in the lobby earlier today who said she helped us with our Christmas gifts. I don't know if she's in here now. Um, you know, help provide Christmas gifts to survivors of trafficking, to survivors who maybe have never had a Christmas before. Um, but. I just want to point out really the dynamic here. We are talking about individuals who come to us who have been literally thrown away by society, who have been told over and over again, nobody cares about you, nobody wants to help you, you are dirty, you are gross, you are broken. And we bring them in and our little army of, you know, 5, 10, 15, we love on them and we try to convince them that that's not true. But nothing convinces them like having a bunch of strangers show up and show them unconditional love. It is so, so powerful. And it's amazing to see that transformation. And we have the privilege of getting to see that on the front lines. But it's just, I always want to share that. I, want to, I wish I could like package it up and bring it back to you to see the effects and the change that you guys make. But it's incredible to see it. But I'll let Katie speak a little bit to what we're looking for in 2020. Yeah, we, um, more of more of this. <laughs> like Natalie said, I think our mental, emotional, spiritual health as a team has been like worlds better since we, you know, met people at the point met Pastor Adam. Um, but definitely coming to volunteer. We have quarterly serve days. We have one coming up on March 7th where we sort of save up 
um, projects that we need help with and have volunteers <laughs> who are very kind come help us tackle those things um, by following us on social media and signing up for our newsletter. We have a table out in the lobby where you can sign up to receive our um, e-newsletter. We don't send out a lot of things, we won't spam your inbox, but anytime there's an opportunity to get involved or a fun event or a need, a survivor need, we'll send an email out. Um, that's a great way to connect with our mission. Um, and also scheduling a training. We have a training catalog out at the table as well, so you can kind of see what our offerings are. But if you are a doctor or a teacher or a parent or um, anything and are interested in bringing a training that's specialized to your group, talk to us, send us an email, go to our website. There's a place that you can look at a calendar and sign up um, because the more people who know what this is and know how to um, respond to it when they encounter it, the stronger we are as a community to continue to respond to the issue. Um, and then another way really to have a great touch point with survivors without meeting them, we're very protective of the folks that we serve, um, but we have a program called the Family Table, which is basically a meal train. I don't know if any of you guys have used meal trains before, um, but basically it's a website you go to and you can sign up to bring a home-cooked meal uh, to us that we will take to the safe shelter for the ladies who live there. We do that twice a week so that they have a nice home-cooked meal with some love baked in. Um, if you're like me and the person that you are married to live with you know, rely on for things, does most of the cooking. You can also, you know, bring sign gift cards. Up. Yeah, <laughs> sign them up. <laughs> that, that would be great. Um, but you can bring gift cards for food places or um, bring it in from somewhere else. That's always a treat as well because anything that's a departure from Easy Mac or something that you can do on a hot plate or in a microwave is a good treat for the ladies. And it, and it really shows them day to day that they're loved and that it's not just the people who are coming into work every day telling them that. It's people in the community, like you said, who haven't met them, who are going out of their way to show some love. So that's a great way to get involved as well. I think just being totally transparent, your financial support. Uh, we cannot continue to do this. We cannot be sustainable without financial support. Now, I wish we didn't have to have that, but we rely on that to be uh, programmatic um, and operational. And so, you know, having financial support from our community partners is so important for us, not just to do the work on a daily basis, but to be able to promise to be able to do the work in six months or a year or two years. Um, you know, we are committing to this community and we're committing to this group of survivors and we need to uh, be able to do that with uh, kind of full hearts and confident bank accounts. Uh, so that's always a helpful, um, you know, powerful way to support what we're doing. Awesome. Well, thank you, ladies, for coming and joining us today. Uh, they will both be out at the table. If you want to stick around and ask some questions, sign up for that newsletter. Uh, if you want to find ways you can get involved in other things, uh, they'll both be there as long as you're willing to stick around and talk. Um, can we wrap up with some prayer? Awesome. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we are called to do justice because you have done it for us, that you entered into our hurt and loved us when it was hard, that we can love others. We thank you for these ladies and for the work they're doing at the coalition. We thank you for the survivors they're serving and the people they're training. We thank you, God, that you are making a huge difference through them in our community. Help us, God, to do justice, to partner with them, to walk alongside them, uh, to encourage and support, and to see those who are hurting find healing and be set free from their oppression. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, for their time, 
and for everything that you are doing. May you be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Now, as we continue and wrap up our worship this morning, uh, we're going to collect an offering, and I'm going to do something I did not tell them about. Um, So this is a surprise to them, but... uh, From time to time, I like to just say, whatever you guys give today, whatever comes in this week in offering, we're going to give 10% away directly to them. We're just going to take it off and give it to them. Now, I have a goal, a a dream that is really crazy and um, may or may not happen. But here's my really crazy dream. And it's something we've never done before as a church. I want to challenge you. If offering today exceeds $10,000, which it's never done on one Sunday, we're going to give 25% of what comes in straight to them, all right? Because we really love them, and we really love the work they're doing. So if you're here today and you want to partner and say, I- I'm all in, let's do justice and follow it with our finances. Uh, if you want to support what we're doing through this church and here in this place, you can give in these popcorn buckets where you can put your connect cards as well. You can give online at thepointknox.com. Uh, however you choose to give, Know this, you are loved. Uh, Giving doesn't change how much you're loved. So give because you're loved and not to get it. Thank you. Now, this is the part of the service where I normally answer all of your questions. And there were a few that came in today, uh, but I was enjoying listening to them and not paying attention to the time. And so I kept you longer than I normally will. So I will answer most of the questions via Facebook and appoint leftovers this week. But there's one in particular I want to answer right now. Uh, Please explain the difference between prostitution and human trafficking. Some are voluntarily in it by means of getting addicted to drugs, they're runaways living on the streets, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're trafficked. Or are we just lumping them all together and calling it human trafficking because there's more money available for services if they're trafficked and not prostitutes? So let me clarify. Uh, Nobody, not a single person, wants to be sexually taken advantage of. Nobody. There are some who enter into sex work, whether it's as a prostitute or a stripper or a porn star. There are some who enter in voluntarily thinking it's an opportunity to make money, but not because they want to be exploited, because they're desperate for money. Now, statistically, over 90% of prostitutes have a connection to trafficking. That might be where they started. That might be where their addiction to drugs came from. So statistically, they may, at the time they're arrested, be there because they chose to do it, but they didn't start doing it because they chose to do it. Um, So when we see someone who's a prostitute or a sex worker, um, it's generally safe to assume they don't want to be there, even if they chose to get into it themselves. Um, So... Uh, I will answer these other questions. Uh, I'll address them uh, later this week on social media. Real quick, I need your help this week. If you could go on to thepointknox.com. On our website, there's a a tab for Sunday morning, and we have a survey there. Next weekend, there's going to be about 14 of us that are taking a little retreat to dive into where's, the, where's God leading us in the future? Uh, where have we been and where are we going? And what, is, what does that look like today and tomorrow to get there? And so we've got three questions on the survey online. If you will take a moment, you can fill it out anonymously or you can fill it out with your name in it. We don't mind. We're just trying to gauge uh, kind of what God has been doing so we can look at where he's going in the future. Um, Thank you. With that, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you.
May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. at the Regal Downtown West Cinema 8, located at 1640 Downtown West Boulevard. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.